0: This is a download from the BBC. To find out more, visit bbc.co.uk slash radio4. In fact, we've got billions of friends in us. From our mouth to the end of our large intestine, all of us are the warm, wet, and well provisioned host to a remarkable ecosystem of microbes, many of which aren't just friends, but essential partners in our lives.
1: Digestion of our food. They
2: break down fibre, which is not digestible by our enzymes. Plus, So some of the calories that you get in from the diet actually come through microbial conversions. The provision of
1: key nutrients, including vitamins.
2: They also are involved in the breakdown of excess protein. The regulation of our own metabolism. They may be involved in relation to our satiety, in relation to what we want from our
1: diet. The... Education of our immune system. There are more immune cells in the gut than anywhere else in the body. The protection of us from invasion by disease-causing organisms.
3: There's a very impressive and complicated dialogue going on between the host and the bacteria in the gut.
1: And even things like degradation and elimination of chemicals in our environment that might be otherwise toxic to us.
0: It's an impressive list and we're only just beginning to understand exactly how important our microbial friends really are. In this first episode of the new series of Frontiers, I'm going to be exploring some of the very latest work being done by scientists on their quest to understand the complex and essential relationships we have with the microbiota residing in our guts. And why, maybe, we shouldn't be thinking of ourselves as individual organisms at all, but rather a complex human microbial superorganism, First, we have to get to grips with how many friends we're talking about. David Relman is Professor of Medicine, Microbiology and Immunology at Stanford University. He says it's not just our gastrointestinal tract that are packed with microbes.
1: Every surface of the human body, including outside and inside, is heavily colonised by a complex set of microbial life. The numbers and the kinds of organisms vary immensely from one site to another, and In sum, we are quite substantially outnumbered, and although that might sound threatening, I find it quite reassuring. But those numbers are basically 10 to 1 microbial cell to human cell. I think the estimate
4: is that 90% of the cells in our body are bacteria inside the large intestine. So you and me are 10 times more bacteria than we are mammal, if you take that literally.
0: It's probably not surprising that microbiologist Professor Glenn Gibson, in his rather smelly lab at the University of Reading, is so bacterially minded when it comes to defining what it is to be human. He gave me the rundown of where in our guts these bacteria reside. The
4: oral cavity is well colonised. Plaque is almost an entire culture of bacteria. The stomach is not well colonised because of the acid... In the small intestine, which is the next organ, the pH is more alkaline, and so bacterial numbers are rather higher. There's just probably about, let's say, a 1,000 per mil in the stomach, maybe 10,000 to a million per mil in the small intestine, which sounds like a lot, but it isn't when you compare that to the large intestine, which has the slowest transit, the widest bore size, and the most appropriate pH, which is neutral. And in there, bacteria become up to a level of 10 to the power 12, so that's a 10 with 11 noughts after it for every gram. And it's actually about as many bacteria as you can physically fit inside the space of one gram. So it's probably the most intensively colonised
0: area anywhere. So whatever you might think is in there, our large intestine is basically as jam-packed as it can be with bacteria. It's important to point out, though, says David Relman, that while it's the bacteria we know the most about, there are other microbial organisms living in our guts.
1: We are very much bacteriocentric these days. It's in part because we're so good now at detecting and identifying bacteria. But there are many, many other microbial life forms. Our body is full of viruses. We have fungi. We have other kinds of single-celled life forms that are probably quite important and yet really hardly known to us.
0: Some of what we know about which bacteria we have living in and on our bodies comes from traditional microbiological techniques of taking samples and growing them up in the lab. But it's not easy. These are organisms that have evolved over millions of years to live inside us, not on a Petri dish in a lab. So over the past five years or so, the same techniques used to produce the human genome, the map of all of the genes in our own bodies, have been used to sequence the microbiome. And as Jeremy Nicholson... Professor of Biological Chemistry at Imperial College London points out, it started giving us insight into who is actually living in there.
2: Well, who's there is, has only really become apparent in the last few years when we've been able to take advantage of the very latest generation of DNA sequencing technologies, which were originally built for the Human Genome Project. The number of genes in the microbiome is much, much greater than the human genome. So, for humans, there's approximately 21,000 genes that code for proteins. In the microbiome, the estimate is somewhere between 5 million and 10 million genes that are present in this consortium of bacteria, the functions of which we know very, very little about. So if you think in terms of the genetic activity in the body, we are far, far less than 1% human in terms of overall gene activity. And so there's this, this incredible challenge for the future of understanding what all those genes are doing, how many of them are important for us in this microbial consortium.
0: And that's what our guts are, a microbial consortium. And although it's very early days, it's important to realise that many of the microbial genes and their functions become in effect our genes and our functions. It's clear that sorting out who does what is a massive task for the scientists and a massive topic for this programme. So far, we've had a lot of figures thrown at us. It's safe to say the gut microbiota and its corresponding microbiome is a huge, very important, yet little understood part of our functioning selves. We are in fact a walking, talking, eating ecosystem. I'm going to stick with the gut from now on and try to detail just a few of the important new things we're discovering about how this superorganism of ourselves and our microbes works. And where better to begin than how it all starts in the first place, in our infancy. According to Paul O'Toole, professor of microbial genomics at the Alimentary Pharmabiotic Center, University College Cork, it starts pretty much at the point of birth.
5: The infant is recognized as being born essentially lacking any bacteria. When we emerge from the birth canal, we are lacking any microorganisms. And the natural process is to be colonised from your mum's birth canal. And that's why the recent significant increase in rates of cesarean section has given people pause for thought to wonder what the consequences for their long-term microbial ecology are. Then during the first weeks and months of life, the infant is colonised from the environment, from their food and from their family members. It's a little bit chaotic, and it takes about two years for the microbial community, the microbiota, to become established. And by around toddler years, the infant has what looks like a recognisably adult microbiota.
6: What's very important is the mother passing her microbiota to babies from the birth canal and also from breast milk. And these, what we call pioneer bacteria, are specialised to be able to stimulate and educate the immune system as they start to colonise the gut.
0: Fiona Powery, Professor of Gastroenterology at Oxford University. If you think about it, it's intuitive that the immune system, a host of cells in our body which protect us against invading pathogens, should be most active in the region where we have the most microbes, our gut, and that the priming or education of our infant immune system should happen at the gut wall or epithelium.
6: There are more immune cells in the gut than anywhere else in the body and they come into very close contact with these huge number of intestinal microbes, just one epithelial cell away. So there's a constant conversation, dialogue going on between our gut microbes and our immune system that's very important for the proper development and functioning of the immune system that plays a key role in protecting us from various diseases.
0: So is the immune system in our gut different from the immune system that's operating in our blood, for example?
6: It is. There's a lot more structure. You might like to think that the immune system in the gut is a town. It has a lot of structure where various immune cells live. They're very precise modes of communication. So it's Organised in a different way from immune cells that are circulating transiently through the blood.
0: So our guts are the region in our bodies where our immune system builds from a very early age. But how does it learn? How can it know to leave our beneficial bugs alone while be ready to combat the harmful ones? After all, apart from our skin, it's the region of our body that gets exposed to the highest diversity of microbes.
6: The gut is a portal of entry for things from the environment. So one important aspect is that the gut has, through development, learned to distinguish, to sense what is good and what is bad in terms of microbes. And one aspect of being able to sense involves the development of a particular population of immune cells, termed regulatory T-cells, that keep the immune response in check. They act as the stewards in a football match, for example, making sure the crowd remains under control when there's quite a lot of excitement.
0: And what happens if that system breaks down, if we get too much excitement in the gut?
6: Well, it's bad news because there are lots of microbes there and the immune system will respond to microbes. You get an inflammatory response. And unlike a pathogen where the immune response will eradicate that bug, We can't eradicate all of our intestinal microbiota, so you get a chronic response, almost the way you could do to some of your own tissues in certain autoimmune diseases.
0: So what are the symptoms and what sort of conditions are we talking about when this system of regulatory T-cells breaks down?
6: Well, one part of that involves chronic bowel diseases, the inflammatory bowel diseases. And what happens there is that the immune response is attacking are beneficial bacteria, the way it would a pathogen, harmful bacteria. And this leads to the development of inflammation, bowel, pain, a lot of systemic effects that are very uncomfortable.
0: By understanding the fine detail of what happens when the immune system goes wrong, Fiona Parry and her team are looking into ways to fix these problems. The inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis usually present themselves after the gut microbiota is established. But if we go back to this idea that the method of birth plays a vital role in how our gut bugs and immune system gets established, does the method of our birth affect us in later life? David Relman.
1: There are some studies which suggest that should you emerge by caesarean, that you will have certain kinds of microorganisms which encourage the development of allergic disease later in childhood. Things like asthma and eczema are both associated with birth by caesarean section, as well as other kinds of environmental risk factors early in life. And the converse is true as well, that if you come out through the birth canal and are exposed to those microbial communities, that you have a lesser chance of allergic disease, including asthma and eczema.
0: David Relman says it's clear that getting the right start in life is essential for our microbial communities, as well as ourselves. As an ecologist, I'm interested in what's going on within the actual community of microbes in our gut. How does the adult microbiota get established? Once set up, does it stay the same? Or is it more like an ecosystem we're more familiar with, like a tropical rainforest, with plants and animals competing with one another for limited resources and being subject to all manner of disturbance and perturbation? To find out more, I went to visit an old college mate of mine, Kevin Foster, now a professor of evolutionary biology, specialising in microbial ecosystems at Oxford University. I asked him if we can compare our gut microbial community to something like a rainforest.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're specifically currently trying to develop mathematical models to understand what makes a stable gut community. And we're using the same models that people have used traditionally to understand conservation ecology, you know, so how do I maintain the most species in an ecosystem I want to conserve? Equally, the host over evolutionary time presumably has been playing the same games and trying to evolve to manipulate the communities in a manner that makes them both diverse, stable and useful to the host.
0: And just a sample of the sort of interactions that take place between different microbes in the gut?
3: The simplest one is where two things both want the same food, and if you take someone else's food they don't do so well, so that's a competitive interaction. That has led in many cases to the evolution of toxins, so competitive toxins, and something like E. coli makes a lot of these toxins, and we think that specifically so it can get the most food and take out other strains. But there's also room for positive interactions. So one strain can secrete something that the other one can use as food and indeed may also facilitate its attachment to a surface or so on. So it's not all about competition, but competition certainly is what we expect the predominant interaction
0: between any two strains in these systems. Do we have any idea over what sort of time scale some of these communities can remain stable? I mean, are they constantly changing? That really depends on the
3: scale at which one looks. So speaking about gut
0: communities... Various people collected poo
3: each day and sequenced to see what's there, and they've done that basically for a year. If you look at just the species that is present, it's incredibly stable. It's strikingly stable. So at a very sort of high level, there's an incredible stability in the gut, striking. You know, each individual has a different composition, but their composition could be stable over a period of years, which is striking. However, there's something of an interesting conundrum here. The gut communities are very stable at the high level, but we know that they're dynamic, growing, evolving communities at the fine scale, and we need to try and reconcile those two things, and that's a big challenge for the future.
0: We know that diseases can destabilise our gut microbiota, but what about our diet? How does what we ingest affect our internal passengers? After all, they consume what we do. Sticking with the ecological theme... And a rainforest in particular.
5: If we consider our gut microbiota as, as like a rainforest, which, if pristine and unaffected by human civilization, has dozens, if not hundreds, of species, animals, and plants, and they're all interacting and eating the natural nutrients available. Let's imagine that we remove all the trees and we helicopter in bales of hay every day instead. What happens is that all of the animals which previously ate the plants will probably die off if they cannot consume hay. And we end up with a very narrow, low-diversity ecosystem, or in the case of the gut microbiota, a low-diversity microbiota.
0: And this is, according to Paul O'Toole, what's happening in our guts when we get older, when we reach old age. It's all related to our diet. Physical and lifestyle changes mean many of us can lose interest in food. We lose our sense of smell. Problems with our teeth mean we can't chew properly. Cooking, for one, can be tedious. So we end up with very restricted diets. Paul wanted to see if this changed our microbiota and subsequently our health. In 2007,
5: he started a large-scale study called Eldermet. The aim of Eldermet was to examine the gut microbiota of 500 people over age 65 and to see if there were links between the composition of the microbiota and the health status of these people. Paul and his colleagues took a whole
0: range of biological samples and clinical measurements. They collected blood and poo and measured
5: musculature, cognitive function and blood pressure over a period of six months. We were hopeful that these measurements could be linked to microbiota alterations, but we really had no firm indication that we could make such connections. And to make a long story short, after five years of intense research and a lot of willing volunteers, we discovered significant links between changes in the microbiota and the health status of these elderly people. And excitingly, one of the major influences was that of their habitual diet. And the firmest measurement we made was that the diversity of the microbiota is directly proportional to the healthy food diversity.
0: Diversity is the key word here. It's variety that's the spice of life. And without it, we end up with the chopped down rainforest and the bales of hay scenario. And the consequences to our health can be chronic. They had
5: lower musculature in their calves and their mid-arms. And they also had higher levels of inflammation. These are these blood markers which are telling us that the immune system is permanently in this undesired on state. The solution
0: surely must be to make sure you continue to have a healthy and varied diet as you get older. But as we've heard, changes in lifestyle coupled with physiological changes as we age can make this very difficult. So what about supplementing not your diet but your microbiota? To find out about this I went to Reading University to meet microbiologist Professor Glenn Gibson in his robot gut lab. It was full of pumps, tubes, wires, monitors, hooked up to vessels and tanks of rather suspicious looking brown liquid and to me there was a rather pungent smell. It
4: smells all right for once. What do you reckon? Not too bad terrible, isn't it? Slightly sewagey. And that's pumping in gas from outside, and so the, the smell is being liberated through these ones, entering the atmosphere here. And this whole lab is under a negative pressure, and so the, the smell is being sucked out. And this is a bit of a secret, but it's being pumped right into the chemistry department next door. <laughs> and, be, and being chemists, none of them have yet noticed. <laughs> so we won't tell them. <laughs>
0: So I can see this brown liquid, um, <laughs> which it's kind of obvious what that's mimicking, but, but what's actually inside these chambers? The brown liquid is diluted faeces,
4: actually, diluted poo samples, so, we make a solution of it, we then filter it and take out the large particles, I shall call them, digested food, and we then put the resulting liquid into our gut models and then start our experiments. And what research are you doing with this setup? Well, we work on two concepts. One is called probiotics, which you know, lots of people have heard about. It's, it's been around a long time. And these are examples of the, the little bottles with, with all the friendly bacteria in, as they're called. And so we would add probiotics to our system, see how well they survive and what they do in there. The other way of doing it is called a prebiotic which is a newer concept but it changes what's down there in the first place. So it takes the view that we have beneficial bugs already in the gut and a prebiotic would boost their numbers and activity and then we look at really the health consequences of that. But ultimately what we're driving towards really a confirmation in human trials.
0: With the robot gut that you've got set up here how would you actually try and look at how things affect what's going on in that community? Well, it depends what the
4: experiment is, really. We can set up models which replicate healthy adults, or we can set up ones for for little children or babies or elderly people, or we can look at particular clinical states. And some of the things we're interested in is IBS, Irritable Bowel Syndrome, ulcerative colitis, obesity, bowel cancer, pseudomembranous colitis, all these weird and wonderful gut diseases which we can replicate in the models. And once we've done that, we then plan an intervention against the bugs which we feel will be of consequence positively to that condition. In healthy people it will be trying to prophylactically or preventatively manage issues like food poisoning, gastroenteritis. In things like IBS and colitis, we'll be trying to reduce some of the symptoms of the disease. How would you get into a therapy with this sort of thing? How do you actually affect what's going on inside medically? It's very generically simple, actually. We're trying to decrease the pathogenic load. So that's the negative bacteria. So we know that there are bacteria downstairs which manufacture toxins, which really upset intestinal health. Once we understand what they are, we then target them. And that might be a target through diet, or it could be a pharmaceutical-type target.
0: But nevertheless, we need to check that it works. So are we starting to develop a much more holistic way of treating people medically, where we're not just treating our bodies, but we also have to take account of our internal passengers as well?
4: It's a form of personalised medicine, if you like. You know, a few years ago, I guess if you'd have been making the programme, it would have all been kind of bad news and what bacteria can do, and there's E. coli outbreaks and, you know, food poisonings all over the place, cholera. Well, now it's actually the realisation that most bacteria are not harmful. And most of them are pretty essential for our health and well-being. We couldn't live without bacteria inside the gut. So I think that's been a big step change, if you like, for research, for healthcare workers and consumers as well. I think personalised medicine will go towards
0: fortifying these. So could Glenn Gibson's probiotics and prebiotics, or microbiota supplementation, be an answer to the failing microflora in elderly people's
5: guts? Paul O'Toole thinks it needs something a bit more powerful. I do think that in some people with an extremely low diversity microbiota, there is a case to be made for re the missing organisms. Not as probiotics, because this is beyond probiotics, it's more complex. You need to restore missing swathes of the community, and we're planning such experiments at the moment, how one might go about that.
0: So instead of giving a probiotic containing just one or two beneficial strains of bacteria, what needs to be replaced are whole swathes of the community. It's where these replacements are found that's proving a little hard to swallow.
5: One of the ways in which people are reintroducing diversities of the microbiota is the controversial topic of fecal microbiota transplantation, or FMT. And this has been pioneered for a couple of clinical symptoms, including Clostridium difficile infection, or C. diff, also in metabolic syndrome, which is close to diabetes, and essentially the recipient of a faecal transplant, it sounds revolting, but it's essentially a slurry of faeces from a healthy individual administered, usually in enema format, the C. diff infection was cured. In upwards of 90% of the cases studied. Well, at
0: least it goes in the other end, I guess. But while it sounds gross, it does save lives. And it highlights the need for this holistic approach of replacing the whole gut flora. But at the same time, it also begs the question, should we maybe be saving samples of our own poo, rather than relying on donated faecal matter, in the off chance we too ever need to boost or rebuild our microbiota? Jeremy Nicholson.
2: The answer is yes, probably, if you can store it in the right way. The other thing is whether or not there should be public money putting into large-scale biobanking of healthy microbiomes for a future that we don't yet understand. But we do know it's a future where the microbiome will change. We've changed our microbiomes more in the last 50 or 60 years than have probably happened in the previous 10,000 years as a society because we've introduced all sorts of lifestyle changes that impact on microbial development. We Use antibiotics now well guess what antibiotics have big effects on your microbes good and bad and so that, there's been a systematic change in populations that have been using antibiotics regularly there's also behavioral changes you know we don't let our kids go out and play in mud anymore you know because, uh, keep them nice and clean and we reduce their exposures to environmental pathogens and things like that and as a result of which your immune system is less well tuned to be able to deal with these microbial insults later in life and that comes part of something known as the hygiene hypothesis which may lead to unhealthier children unhealthier futures so our microbes have definitely changed and probably for the worse they're still in reasonable state i think at the moment but in the future we don't know what will be in store for us so large-scale banking of such samples might turn out to be quite a smart thing to do
0: It's evident that we've only scratched the surface of the work being done to try to understand the bugs in our guts. There's a lot of research being done, exploring the link between our microbial communities and obesity and diabetes. Some researchers are concentrating on the microbial genome, the microbiome, to see if it could be used as a therapeutic target. And others are looking at the role our gut microbes play in metabolising drugs and why some medicines work better for some people than others. But one thing's for sure. We have to look at the system as a whole. We are not alone. We are an ecosystem, and our microbial communities, our friends within, clearly have a big part to play in our lives.
2: You've got a friend in me. You've
1: got a friend in me. I almost think that we as humans would learn so much about how to cooperate better amongst ourselves as humans. By simply looking at and understanding better how microbes have evolved to do so in such an effective way over these millions and millions of years that they've had. I consider this to be an incredibly exciting time in this field. Almost every question is a reasonable question to be asking right now.
3: Yeah,
0: If you've enjoyed this programme, you might like to try other Radio 4 podcasts, including Start the Week, lively discussions chaired by Andrew Marr, and a weekly highlight from Radio 4's evening arts programme, Front Row. To find out more, visit bbc.co.uk slash radio4.